Today's show is brought to you by Donors Trust, the community foundation for the liberty movement. If you want to support groups committed to limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise with your charitable giving, you should learn how Donors Trust can simplify your giving. So go to DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet right now to get your free Investing in Liberty guide. Hey folks, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. Uh, I would like to remind you, we've been on a while now, and I just would like to remind you of what we're about. The purpose of this podcast uh, is to provide what we hope is uh, some clarity and soundness above the din, um, to provide a engaging and thoughtful take on what's going on in our world, particularly the political world, politics writ large, as Aristotle would understand it, not just partisan politics. Uh, we like to do a take on the Trump administration and the moral, political, and national security issues that affect our republic. Uh, we're trying to get at this in a way that isn't uh, just chatty uh, and just, you know, news interviewee. We're trying to go a little deeper. We try to pitch it higher and have engaging conversations with experts and key members of the Trump team and, and others. Uh, and we let them talk. Each, each week we try and provide an intellectual explanation. And when we can, a defense of Trumpism and the Trump agenda, I'm not sure you get anywhere else. I usually give my own thoughts on at least some aspects of what our guests are talking about. And we hope you find that worthwhile. We do get reaction from you, and it is worth uh, repeating some of it. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Before I get to some of our listener reaction, uh, most of this came, Chris, on from Twitter, right? Is that right? That's right. Uh, I just want to say I think we are now a step or two closer to real tax reform. That vote out of the committee um, uh, was very encouraging, I think, and we shall see. I believe they're going to get there. I believe there's going to be some real serious horse trading going on before, but I think the, uh, they'll get there. Sadly, there will not be any Democrats voting for this, but unfortunately, that's the state of things in Washington. One of these days, we're going to have a long conversation about how things got so polarized and balkanized, and without you know laying blame a priori here, love your thoughts on that. How did things get to this point that were so balkanized that you got a piece of legislation that makes sense? to Democrats, but not Republicans, one that makes sense to Republicans, but not Democrats. It's a pretty interesting state. Does it last? Does it survive? Will there be some kind of uh, change, some kind of watershed that um, will bring back uh, votes across the aisle? I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. I need to think about it. I'd like you to think about it, too. Um, I'm not going to get into sexual predator stuff, except to say the reckoning continues, and um you know, uh, the, the reaping goes on, but they're, this is mostly centered in the media, which is reacting very quickly and, uh, in a draconian fashion. I'm not saying it's uh, being a cruel, um, but I, again, as I told you last time, as I said last time, I, I, people are conflating real predatory, boorish, obnoxious, uh, aggressive, almost, um, offensive, uh, almost criminal behavior with, you know, an unwanted pattern, unwanted touching here or there. And I think we need to be careful. Um, just an observation. I was listening to a New York Times reporter this morning who was covering these stories saying, we're not interested in extramarital affairs. We're not interested in 
consensual sex. We're not interested in, you know, whether people are violating their marriage vows or all that. Uh, we're interested in, you know, whether people are being aggressive against people who are not consenting. Men being aggressive against women who are not consenting. I understand. I don't particularly want the New York Times to cover, you know, uh, consensual extramarital affairs. I don't really want to read about it. But what's interesting to me is that in terms of what uh, what harm is done, um, extramarital affairs can often cause a lot more harm, often do, I would say, than uh, some unwanted touching. Not all unwanted touching, but some unwanted touching. Um, we'll explore this further uh, next week and the week after. Again, I welcome your thoughts on it. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Let's go to some uh, reaction from our audience. Um, these are tweets, correct, Chris? Yes, that's right. Why aren't they Snapchats? <laughs> uh, because What's you don't have difference. <laughs> you don't have Snapchat. You're okay, that's on, one thing. Okay. You're on Twitter at William J. Bennett. Uh, a Snapchat is a uh, picture or video that's sent to someone that erases itself after they w- they watch it. Tweets. Oh, it's like uh, the like, Mission Impossible message. Right. This message will self-destruct. In 30 seconds. Okay. Tweets, as uh, we all know, um, and the president knows, are there permanently unless you take them down yourself. Okay. As we all know. That was kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure I deserve that. Uh, anyway, Larry wrote, um, he's referring, I think, to my saying about Roy Moore, it's up to the people of Alabama, and I will give him... Uh, credit at least for one thing, 40 years of seemingly pretty good behavior. If there were bad behavior in that 40 years, you could be sure the Washington Post and New York Times would have found it. Um, I say this without approving of anything that was alleged, if it indeed did happen. It's terrible stuff, horrible stuff. But Larry says, when my four boys were young, I used to read to them at bedtime from the Book of Virtues. Today, I'm proud to say I'm no longer part of the modern Republican Party. Still, it never ceases to be disturbing how easily people like William J. Bennett choose party over principles. I don't really think I'm doing that. I think I'm trying to think this thing through, and I don't think there's an obvious answer. Um, W.C. writes, always an excellent messenger, Bill. Every sinner has a future. Every saint has a past. Excellent response to the form over substance, never Trumpers. So W.C. is kind of with me on this. Another uh, tweet from another reader of the Book of Virtues. Boy, really good thing I did that Book of Virtues. Now it's, now people throw it at me. You know, <laughs> uh, What do you mean? You wrote the Book of Virtues. Uh, Nathan writes, as a Book of Virtues reader, owner, and believer, I'm saddened by your equivocation on Roy Moore. However, long ago, the transgression, his inability to admit fault is disqualifying. I'm in tears, Dr. Bennett. I, I, You know, I said, I believe last time, I'm pretty sure I said, <clears throat> it would be better if he had said, look, I did some things I shouldn't have done. I'm really, really sorry. I don't think I did it, some of the stuff that's alleged, but I did some stuff that's really bad and uh, or bad, and I'm really sorry. I've straightened out my life and tried to be better. That would have been more persuasive. Um, again, I come back to the citizens of Alabama. Mark writes, I think uh, the guy, Roy Moore, made some bad decisions in his younger days. This is not about his soul, but about politics. If he makes amends, he may not survive politically, but it should be good for the long haul. 
Yeah, maybe. Boy, you can see, though, that, first of all, what catches the ear of listeners, okay? And um, how different uh, people read the situation. Uh, all I'm saying is I think it's a little more complicated than people say it's open and shut either way. Okay, that's what I think. Chris, any comment? Uh, well, just the reaction to the Book of Virtue stuff, because that stuff sticks in my mind. Uh, whatever you think about this Roy Moore situation, uh, don't throw away the Book of Virtues. I think that's needed now more than ever, looking at everything that's going on around us and all the scandals. And, you know, from your from working for you for so long and, and your perspective on these issues, you know, we've wondered for a long time, you did the, you know, the Index of Leading Cultural Indicators, We've been wondering for a long time what are going to be the ramifications of uh, cultural and institutional decay. I think we're starting to see that. So please, whatever you do, do not throw out the Book of Virtues. Uh, Keep reading that to your kids. I'm even thinking of reissuing it. Yeah, good, great idea. It's an argument that we never needed it more. If people object to my name on it, they can (laughs) cross through it and put somebody else's name on it. You know, whatever you like. Okay, now, let me turn to national security. The world, as we know, is a very dangerous place and getting more so every day. Uh, You probably know I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington, and I wanted to discuss with some of my colleagues their take on what we should be focusing on this week. Obviously, a pressing matter is North Korea. Their ongoing belligerence, especially their new missile test this week. Is this a quantum jump, quantum leap? It's the most sophisticated and far-reaching missile they've launched. What does it mean? Here to discuss this with me is nobody better. Gordon Chang, columnist at the Daily Beast and author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Again, prescient title. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Gordon Chang. Gordon Chang is a columnist at the Daily Beast and the author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Good morning, Gordon, and thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Bill. Well, okay, we've had this conversation, it seems, a lot. Is this quantitatively different, qualitatively different? Is is what's going on now, I'm sp- first of all speaking specifically of this missile launch, is, it, is this a game changer or an agenda changer, North Korea? Yeah, this missile... This missile launch is incremental improvement over the July 28th launch. Um, that was a Wasong 14th on July 28th. Um, had a range of maybe three, four, five hundred miles shorter than this one. This missile is a Wasong 15. Um, it's a bigger, thicker missile. Um, probably has um, you know more capabilities, but nonetheless, uh, the North Koreans are making very fast progress. So we can say that within, let's say, nine months, a year from now, the North Koreans will be able to hit all of the American homeland with a missile. In all probability, they will have a nuclear warhead for that that will be able to survive reentry. So they will then be able to target the American city of their choice in a very near future. Wow. How long? Nine months, year. 15 months at the outside. We're talking a matter of months, not years. I was reading uh, Politico this morning, and they were saying, well, experts say can't really hit all of the United States, but could hit the West Coast, and bad enough if they get Silicon Valley and San Francisco and Los Angeles. But you're saying within six, nine months, they could hit all of the United States. Yeah, I I, I, I think so. 
the July 28th launch demonstrated uh, that they could get at least to Boston. Now, we don't know the weight of the warhead that was tested on July 28th or the weight of the warhead this time. Uh, but nonetheless, we can see that the progress is accelerating. And so, therefore, we have to assume that within this short period, they will be able to target the American city that they choose. You used uh, the word incrementally. Um, I was reading a piece saying this is a new type of intercontinental ballistic missile. Um, is it a new type or just a stronger version of the old type, just an incremental increase, or is this something, again, qualitatively different? Yeah, I don't think that it's really qualitatively different. Okay. But we also know that they have missiles that are qualitatively better than the ones that they tested July 28th and okay. uh, yesterday. And, and that is, they're making the jump from liquid fuel missiles to solid fuel ones. We know of three solid fuel tests, um, August 24th of last year, February 12th, and uh, May 21st. So they're going on different tracks. And eventually they will have a solid fuel missile. They'll be able to put it on the back of a mobile launcher, launch, launch it at any time they want at the United States. And so, you know, this is people like to split differences and say, oh, well, you know, this missile can't do this, or the guidance is lousy, or the heat shielding doesn't work. But we also know that they are making this progress which just uh, we should see that they're integrating and improving their capabilities at a rapid clip. Okay. I thought, Gordon, that, um, and I, I said the other night, I may have been mistaken, I said, well, I'll give the president credit for this. Um, things seem to have calmed down. I thought things had calmed down some, but this surely changes that version of the story or that story. Well, you were right. Uh, things had calmed down because the last nuclear detonation was September 3. The last missile launch was September 15th. Okay. Um, but the reason why they calmed down, um, I think, was primarily China. And the reason why China got the North Koreans to stop doing provocative things was because the Chinese didn't want anything to disrupt the calm before their Communist Party's 19th National Congress, which started October 18. And so um, uh -huh. I think Beijing put the hard word on Pyongyang. And, you know, yes, relations between the Chinese and the North Koreans haven't been the best in recent years. But nonetheless, Kim Jong-un, the North Korean ruler, sent a warm congratulatory message to Xi Jinping, his Chinese counterpart, at the end of the 19th Congress. And that undermines the narrative that the Chinese uh, don't control the North Koreans. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh that's what I want to get to. Does this one more question linking the missile here and this uh, uh, the change? Does it mean a change, or should it mean a change in our strategy, uh, in our approach to North Korea, or is we back to the same old alternatives we've had from time immemorial? It seems. Well, I think that President Trump's underlying strategy is actually a very good one and doesn't need to be changed. It just needs to be ramped up. You know, we have seen um, the administration's campaign to cut off money flows to North Korea. And this culminated in his September 21 executive order, which is groundbreaking. It basically tells the world that if you do business with North Korea, you're not doing business with the United States. What needs to happen now, Bill, is for the administration to actually enforce that to its fullest extent. 
if President Trump were to do that, then I think that we could peacefully disarm North Korea. It might not be within nine months or 15 months, but it would be very soon. And the reason is that uh, if Kim Jong-un doesn't have money, he can't detonate nukes, he can't launch missiles, and he can't engage in gift politics, which is the giving of luxury items to senior regime elements in order to buy their loyalty. So this is an issue of money, and the president, I think, has the right strategy to strangle the regime. At some point, the regime is going to understand that they are not able to accomplish their objectives, and therefore they have every incentive in the world to sit down and talk to President Trump and to others. Uh, One aspect particularly, Gordon, um, and I, I think you'll know why I'm raising it, the pressure on China to stop the flow of oil into North Korea. Uh, were you, you noticed what Nikki Haley said yesterday. Um, she said something like, you can correct me, um, China needs to do this, and if they don't, we will take it in our own hands. It was pretty strong language. What are we to make of that? Well- Yeah, it's very strong language. Um, Nikki Haley is very good in strong language, but she's not the policymaker to to back that up. And uh, I hope that the administration will back it up, but so far it has not. Um, The administration has sent all the right signals. It has actually the right policies in place. Now it's just a question of enforcement. And in the last month or so, we have not seen the enforcement actions that many people had expected and hoped for. So uh, I hope that Nikki Haley uh, speaks for the administration on this, um, and we'll just have to wait and see. Okay. I mean, follow through on that. What would us (laughs) intercepting the flow of oil from China and North Korea involve? You can't do that without personnel, can you? Well, I don't think that we're actually going to stop the flow of oil um, from China to North Korea. What we can do, though, is we can put pressure on China that is so severe that the Chinese have no choice but to stop the oil themselves. Um, And that involves, for instance, taking a large Chinese bank and declaring it to be a primary money laundering concern under Section 311 of the Patriot Act. Uh, President Trump did uh, that on on June 29th, but only with a small Chinese bank. That was a signal. But we know that Bank of China, one of China's so-called big four banks, has been a money launderer. It was named in a 2016 UN report for devising and operating a money laundering scheme for the North Koreans in Singapore. Um, it's all probability that Bank of China has been doing that in other locations as well. And we need to ask ourselves a fundamental question, Bill. And that is, why is Bank of China allowed to continue doing business in the United States? Yeah, no kidding. If it were declared to be a primary money launderer, it could no longer do business in dollars anywhere in the world. That would essentially be a death sentence for Bank of China. That would tell the Chinese that the United States was serious. Um, But until we designate Bank of China, I think the Chinese are going to say, you know, those Americans are all talk, no action. Uh, you know, I have uh, other friends, uh, admirers of yours, who are China watchers, too, and they say that, you know, not only are are we not discouraging this, they, they have never seen China so aggressive uh, in our markets, getting into our markets. And this, in, in light of uh, a record, uh, China's record, 
of involvement uh, and promise keeping in uh, America, which is not so great. They are not only uh, not intimidated by seemingly anything we do, they seem to be encouraged and being more aggressive all the time. Is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. Um, they're involved, you know, not only in our markets. You know, that's one thing. One can say that's fair game. Um, but they're engaged in predatory trade practices. They're trying to influence political discourse in the United States. Their agents of Ministry of State Security are operating on American soil. That's a violation of our sovereignty. Um, there are all sorts of things the Chinese are doing that are incompatible with a good relationship. And they're becoming emboldened. Um, they believe that uh, they can do what they want. And so far, you know, they're right. Um, this administration, I think, is starting to move against them in ways which um, are encouraging. But nonetheless, uh, they've got a long way to go in Washington before they get the Chinese into the box. All right, good. But this is what I've been thinking, is that you're always very generous in your in your praise of, of this administration. I believe it's genuine what you're saying. Um, it's a new turn and a good direction. They're going in the right direction. And then you follow, and this is a you know, happened in several of our conversations with, and they might consider the following, and then you list, you know, the things you've just been describing. Um, You've got a list of things. Are you, are you, are you seeing responsiveness to it, either directly to you uh, or in actions that are being taken, whether they call you on the phone or not? Are they listening? Are they heeding this kind of advice or your advice in particular? Um, maybe not my advice in particular, but um, there are a couple of encouraging signs. When President Trump was in Beijing, um, his public posture was a little bit disappointing because he seemed to wilt in the gaze of Xi Jinping, uh, the Chinese ruler. But under the surface, um, you know, there are reports that American officials um, were resolute. For instance, they told the Chinese that the U.S. would continue armed sales to Taiwan and that we told them to get their Ministry of State Security agents off our soil. Those are two very good points. But there are other things that we can do um, and we should be doing. And, you know, this is, I guess, incremental progress, to borrow uh, your word. Um, but we will get there, I think, largely because the Chinese are overstepping. And because okay. of that, there is a consensus across the American political spectrum that now the time for the United States to assert um, its positions on a number of things. Because yeah. if we don't do that, the Chinese are going to be running the world, and yeah, that's no. just unacceptable. Yeah, they'll always overstep. Yeah, they'll always overstep. I mean, as a longtime China watcher, this is this is built into their DNA to overstep, correct? Yes. I mean, first of all, um, you know, they are aggressors. Um, they've got a Leninist system, which is insecure. Um, so therefore, they are going to lengths which we have not seen since the Maoist period. Xi Jinping has got dangerous ambitions, and we've got to recognize that because he could do things which will destabilize the world and will take us by surprise. Gordon Chang, I don't know if anybody there listens to you. I expect they do, and you were just being modest, but we sure listen to you, and this audience does, and we thank you. Thank you again very, very much. Thanks for being available to us. Oh, well, thank you, Bill. Okay, coming up next, my conversation with a close friend, someone many of you know well, who recently announced that he is running for Congress. I think you'll be excited to hear about this. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, let's go to our conversation with Seth Liebson. Uh, there's a bookstore in Washington, Politics and Prose. This is called a Politics and Friends section. 
Uh, full disclosure, Seth is uh, a very close friend of mine uh, and was a uh, producer of my radio show for, uh, for some time, for some years. And we've worked together on many projects, including writing books together uh, and otherwise uh, collaborating. Uh, I used to wake him up on airplanes all the time. Uh, not that he likes to sleep, but I just don't like the idea of someone sleeping when I'm not. But uh, he is a good friend. He is the host of the Seth and Chris show on AM 960, The Patriot in Phoenix. He's the co-author with Chris Buskirk of American Greatness, How Conservatism, Inc. Missed the 2016 election and what the D.C. establishment needs to learn. And he's a candidate for Congress in, is it the, the ninth congressional district in Arizona? Is that right? That's right. Arizona Congressional District 9. You bet. It's an open seat. Uh, all right, okay. good friend, Seth. Tell us about the district and the race. Well, thanks, Bill, and thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I like the idea that you don't like other people sleeping while you're awake. That's why we did an early morning radio show together, right? We woke up America. <laughs> That's right. We woke up um, before we went to bed. Wasn't that the line? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. We, we, that's the old Monty Python line. Uh, district 9 in Arizona is uh, the district I grew up in. It's the district my dad moved to in the 1930s, believe it or not. And it is now an open seat. Uh, many, um, many people know of Kirsten Cinema, who was the congresswoman from that district. She's running for U.S. Senate. And so we now have an opportunity to take this, uh, this district and this House seat and turn it from a moderate Democrat to a Republican seat. I just, uh, collected uh, the smartest mind. Yeah. Just to c- connect up with the uh, national conversation here, the Senate seat, which is being vacated by? The Senate seat, which is being vacated by Jeff Flake, is right. what Kirsten Cinema is now going to run for, you bet. Right, right. That's interesting. There will be, and she's a Democrat. She is a Democrat who has uh, played her um, political game very well and has uh, achieved... Um, a patina of moderacy. So she'll have a good run at the flake seat. But as I say, it does open this seat. It's a um, it's an interesting district. It, uh, it's a very moderate district. But I collected uh, 12 of the best minds in Arizona to look at this race when a few people approached me to run for it. And I decided I would only get in if we could win, if there was a serious pathway to win, not 50-50, but something much better than 50-50. And um, I did what you taught me to do, Bill. I put a breakfast together with smart people, and uh, we all did the numbers. We all crunched the district, and we saw a strong pathway to take this seat back, and we're really looking forward to doing that. All right. Now, you say it's a moderate district. How do you describe yourself? You're a conservative? I've been a conservative for a long time, and I like to tell people I, uh, you know, I was blessed and privileged with the best teachers a guy could have starting with two great parents and then off to Claremont to study under Harry Jaffa, who you knew is one of the great political Mm -hmm. philosophers of our time. I I was having a a conversation with Andy McCarthy uh, over at National Review. He was asking me about my run. And I said, you know, I I cut my teeth and learned from the best with uh, you and Kemp and Kirkpatrick. And it dawned on me, um, is, is there room? Is there room for another congressman in that tradition? Um, that's what I kind of want to bring to the race, what I've learned from you all on national security, on economic growth, on social and domestic policy. And he had an interesting line. He said, if there's no room for a Kemp, Kirkpatrick, Bennett person in Congress, there's no reason to have a Republican Party anymore. I thought mm-hmm. that was a nice line. You bet. Tell me, though, as I know you, then, two things about this fit. Um, do you, you describe yourself as a conservative and a longstanding one? I'd vouch for that any day and hope I get the chance to. 
Um, but uh, uh, do you tell this, as you described it, moderate district, Seth, that you are a conservative? Yeah. I, I suppose I it's out there. To, uh... I, sp- I suppose it's out there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been on radio uh, five been, days a week for three yeah, hours. Kind of got a track there's record. Nothing to hide. Yeah, yeah <laughs> there's yeah. nothing to hide. But what we have done is we have centered this race on about five issues. Uh, of course, we'll talk about anything that uh, is on people's minds. But we centered this race on on five issues that are center right issues, but but don't have to be and shouldn't be. They should appeal to the broad yeah. swath of. Arizonans, and that has everything to do from jobs in the economy, domestic policy, to veterans affairs, to uh, national security, to the First Amendment. You know, the First Amendment's taken a big hit lately. I don't need to tell you that, especially on our college campuses and universities where it should thrive the mm-hmm. most. So we're talking about issues that, you know, really should appeal to independents and should appeal to Democrats and should appeal to Republicans. These are 80 percenter issues that we're talking about here. Good. Uh, for those of you who are already charmed uh, by uh, this man and uh, and these remarks, I'm going to mention this a couple of times. The website is SethForCongress.com. That's the number four. Seth, S-E-T-H, number four, Congress.com. Thanks, Bill. I really do yep. appreciate it. Yes, we can use um, all the help. We think this will be a race that will have national appeal and will be looked at nationally because it is, um, as I say, a swing district that we're planning to turn from D to R. Tell me the other thing about you that I know is you're a deep think guy. You know, you mentioned Harry Jaffe. You do. You're a student of political philosophy. You've written some uh, very thoughtful uh, things in, in, in journals. Uh, I know you as a co-author as well, and and know about your your interest in and and we indeed. have we have you and I wrote a book. Go ahead. Yeah. No. No. It's fine. Go ahead. Yeah, well, you and I wrote a book uh, called The Fight of Our Lives, How uh, the West Can Win the War Against Radical Islam. That's a conversation that has died that I'd like to bring back. Uh, One of my advisors is a well-known scholar on this issue. He's also an Arizona resident, Zudi Jasser. I have a great team here. He's on our team. And he wants to help bring back that conversation, uh, the intellectual defense of the West and uh, taking it to an enemy that uh, we have been fighting for far too long, or I should say has been fighting us for far too long. The president, president has said, and uh, backed by General Mattis, who used the, the, the verb annihilate, we're going to annihilate them. We're kind of doing that, aren't we, at least in some places? I know, they're, you know they, they spread themselves out into Egypt and other places, but uh, home base, uh, Syria, uh, and uh, Iraq, they're, they're getting pretty rough uh, treatment from us, aren't they? Physically and militarily, we've done a great job. We have taken what Barack Obama called wrongly the junior varsity team and turned them into almost no team when it comes to, Z- to Syria because uh, of the will of Mattis and Donald Trump and the great American fighting man and woman. But what I don't think we've done a good enough job at is the intellectual defense of the West. The kind of thing, the mm-hmm. kinds of things mm-hmm. Donald Trump was talking about in his Warsaw speech, the kinds of things yeah. Ronald Reagan used to talk about. Remember that great line you taught me, that great line Jim Kirkpatrick said when Ronald Reagan was elected, for too long America has had a kick me sign on its back and we're here to take that sign down. That's the kind of intellectual defense of the West that I think has been lacking. Yeah, but uh, boots on the ground and uh, missiles in the air and soldiers and, uh, you know, um, taking it to them does seem to be what's going on compared to what happened during Obama. Would you say dramatic improvement? I would. 
a dramatic improvement, 180 degrees. Uh, it was we had an, we had a seriously um, ill patient, and Donald Trump, Mattis, U.S. military, they have uh, done the acute care. They have done the important work up front on the military front. But now what we need to do is we need to talk about what this enemy is, where it is. It's in the United States as much as it's in other parts of the world. And I don't think that conversation has been taken seriously enough or strongly enough. And as we know, when we are blithe to it, when we ignore it, they grow. Um, Nature abhors a vacuum, but radical Islam loves it. I want to end that vacuum. Good. Now, have you described, when you talked about the things that um, got you to enter the race, uh, that enticed you into the race, are those the things that you would focus on if you came to Washington or or plug yourself into the current Washington agenda? Go ahead. Absolutely. I want to talk about all of those things, but there's something else I want to talk about, Bill, and I have to tell you, I, I, I learned about it from you. And that's this issue of substance abuse. It's about the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm, it's about mm-hmm. drug dose overde- uh, drug overdose deaths. Um, it doesn't really have a champion. The issue doesn't really have a champion on Capitol Hill right now. Yeah, yeah. And that's another vacuum. 60,000 overdose deaths alone last year. That's longer list than we have on the Vietnam War Memorial, which took 18 years to put together. I will tell you that this is one of the issues, this is one of my first and chief priorities, is to get this conversation going again and to lead the fight to turn this around. You and the American people did it in the 1990s. It's a known science. We can do it again. It just needs a champion, and it really is going to be one of my first priorities. Not only does it save families, save lives, not only is it the right thing to do, but in this age of budget deficits, talk about tax reform and talk about the national debt. I don't think the economically minded have focused their heads rightly on this issue either. Substance abuse and what it costs federal, state, local governments is hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars a year. This is not just an economic issue. It's not just a family and health issue. It's not just an education issue. It's all those issues. And I want to tackle it. Are you going to talk about, I'm interested in this, Seth, in this moderate district, um, uh, your success as, as chairman uh, in Arizona of the, uh, initi- of, of the initiative that defeated the marijuana leg- legalization. I know you're talking about opioids here, but um, this was the only state initiative that prevailed uh, against uh, recreational use of marijuana. Um, and it was very impressive, I think, what you all did. Uh, are you going to, are well, you going to talk about that, or how does that go in a moderate district? Yeah, thank you very much, Bill. Um, we had a lot of success in turning back the legalization of marijuana for recreational use um, in the independent community, now, pr- primarily in uh, in Hispanic churches, which uh, are, of course, uh, which there are a large number of here in Arizona and here in the district. Uh, this was a community that had not been spoken to about this huh. issue, that cared about this issue. They know what it has done in their source countries. So you bet. It was one of the things that people approached me on when they wanted me to run for this race, run for this seat. You know, a group of people had come to me asking me to chair that anti-marijuana initiative. Some of those people saw that success, our ability to communicate, communicate not just to red-minded people, not just to blue-minded people, but to a large swath of independents and people that hadn't focused on these issues. 
Um, it was some of that group that said, come on, let's go. You can communicate this. You can win independence. You can get disaffected Democrats. And, of course, you have a great pedigree with the Republican Party. So Tell us. absolutely we're going to talk about uh, all forms of substance abuse and prevention. Uh, that's the message that has been neglected. And that's why we've seen these numbers go up and no one is happy about it. Tell me if there, because I've, I've talked about this issue a lot on this podcast and, of course, in my my life here as far as drugs are but apart from that people say well fine there's there's that and you can be for or against marijuana but then there's the opioid thing and they're entirely different they're entirely disconnected and you don't want to talk about them in the same breath do you agree with that or not no i don't agree with it um you and i have a dear friend uh you introduced me to named robert dupont he might be dr robert dupont he yeah. might be the most well-published psychiatrist or physician in the field of substance abuse, most well peer review published expert in the field. Well, that's partly because he he's 90 years that. old. No, no, I'm kidding. Well, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's 90, but he's smart and he moves young still, as they He say. moves young, right, right, like Eisenhower. No, he's not 90, he's about 80, but he's amazing. You're right. No, but he, you're, he's prolific. He's he the first director. I agree with you. Yeah, he was the first director of yeah. the National Institute for Drug Abuse. What he likes to point out is that we err when we talk about substance abuse and addiction issues in isolation, when we silo them. It's all one thing. It's all one problem, especially when we're messaging or giving messages to our youth. Um, so that's one part of it. The other part of it is people, it's not really a gateway argument so much as a trajectory argument. You look at this opioid crisis that's affecting so many Americans. And, you know, one of the things we're trying to train physicians on and healthcare providers on is to screen for people with substance abuse problems before they're prescribed opioids in the first place. You know, if they're subject or liable to fall subject to addiction. What we find in almost every case where addiction comes from a prescription is it usually started with an alcohol or a marijuana problem. Yeah, yeah. None of these problems can be viewed in isolation. It's not simply a gateway argument. It's a problem of addiction, substance abuse, screening, and messaging. And it's all our country, as Lincoln said. It's all our territory. It's not just one problem. It's the whole swath of dangerous drugs. I want to ask you a couple more things back to the race and politics. Um, we're talking to Seth Liebson. He's a good friend, a candidate for Congress in the, in the 9th Congressional District uh, in Arizona. Uh, and we are talking to him about the race. Uh, Seth, uh, oh, I want to mention the website again. SethForCongress.com. That's S-E-T-H, Seth, the man's name. The number four, Congress.com. Um what are your thoughts on all these sexual harassment revelations in Congress? And then I'll give you mine. One of the saddest things is that we have to be inundated with these headlines, particularly at this time of year, a time of year of gratefulness, of thanksgiving, of joy, of family, of home and hearth. Um, and to read about this from people who are supposed to represent Americans, this isn't representative of America. I will tell you, I think everyone ought to do, maybe this is a good idea for you, Bill, I think everyone ought to go back to the Book of Virtues and just read that first chapter on self-discipline. I remind people that was the first chapter in the Book of Issues. Maybe you could release that again just as its own standalone. This is what happens um, when we don't uh, think about the most serious things. I, I, I got to tell you, my, my friend Chris Buskirk, my radio host here, he says, were these people raised by wolves? 
I mean, what's wrong with people? Well, it's a problem of the lack of virtues of self-discipline. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, um, people have written me. I just heard from Cal Thomas, other people. Yeah, do, do something, Book of Virtues. I said, okay, fine. I appreciate what you're saying. I said, people are referencing the wrong book. What about the death of outrage about Bill Clinton? Well, it's interesting. The liberals have rediscovered Bill Clinton, and now they're a little outraged. I was thinking about that, too. Um, I was actually going to call you about a week ago asking if you could put Death of Outrage out again. But you may not need to. You may not need to when you see um, the Democrats now turning against the Clintons. you got to think about the importance of last year's election, though. Can you imagine having this story go on with the Clintons in the White House? Can you imagine what that conversation would have looked like at this point in our lives? Just terrible. Just horrible. we got to turn this around. And I think we're beginning to. Let's talk about uh, the divide in the GOP. Um, uh, I don't know how to describe it. I, I guess the easiest way is Trump versus the, everybody else. Um, but uh, what's your sense of things? Yeah, we had a call on this on our show the other day. And, you know, I think the Republican Party is going through a growth spurt right now or a growth challenge, much like the 1970s, um, you know. People have this memory of Ronald Reagan as this avuncular, cheerful, happy, easygoing guy. And he was all of that personally. But you go back to his campaign in 1976, trying to take on the establishment, Gerald Ford and Nelson Rockefeller. Or you go back to his 1980 campaign and you look at his speeches. Blessedly, YouTube and C-SPAN has a lot of this archived footage. It's great this point. man was running pretty hard and pretty strong against the establishment. That's pretty too. good point there. Yeah, you bet. That's right. I had, not, I had forgotten that. I slipped my mind. Go ahead. So we went through that growth spurt in the 1970s. And, you know, a lot of the language used against Donald Trump is a lot of the language that was used against Ronald Reagan. I'm not necessarily comparing Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. They're two very, 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 very different kinds of people. But as a matter of uh, Republican Party politics, as a matter of challenging the establishment, you know, is was this a Nixon, Ford, Rockefeller party in the 1970s, or was it a Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan party? That was yeah. that was the acid test Ronald Reagan created for us, and turned out he spoke to issues that um, you know didn't matter just to people who lived in Manhattan and didn't matter just to people who lived in uh, Los Angeles or Beverly Hills, but, you know, the 48 countries in between those two states. And um, that's, that's, that's what we're going through right now. I think it's very analogous. Okay. Seth, we're going to leave it there, uh, but we want to congratulate you again. Uh, I keep thinking of that line from Justice Holmes uh, where he says, uh, uh, the professor uh, gives up uh, engagement and issues of his time in order to let his intellect flower in the in the peaceful uh, tower of his uh, of his library. But the place for a man who is complete in all his powers is in the fight. And uh, you are in the fight uh, in running for this uh, position in Congress, District Nine in Arizona, Seth. S-E-T-H, number four, congress.com, sethforcongress.com. And uh, we wish you luck. Keep us posted. Bring me in. I want to help. I want to speak for you. And um, uh, good for you. Good daggone for you. Or will I have the best professor in you. Thank you very much. 
Uh, thank you. You are welcome. And uh, keep, yeah, do keep us posted. This is interesting. And, you know, a lot of people listen to this podcast have been with us for a long time and know exactly who you are. So you'll be getting some emails, I expect. Take care, Seth. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. All right, before we move on in the show, I need to tell you more about Donors Trust. It's no secret that many of the best policy ideas are not coming from politicians. Instead, they're coming from think tanks, public interest law centers, and other principled individuals like yourselves. And the best ones are those that do not rely on government money to operate. If you want to help move the ideas of Liberty Forward, invest your charitable giving in those doing the real work of conservative causes. And the simplest way to do this is through Donors Trust. Donors Trust is the community foundation for the Liberty Movement. With a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust, you'll simplify your giving and receive excellent tax benefits, all in a way that gives you an additional layer of privacy. All donor-advised funds offer the same basic services, but Donors Trust is the only donor-advised fund that shares your commitment to conservative principles. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet for your free Investing in Liberty guide that gives practical advice on how to identify principle-driven charities that deserve your support. As we near the end of 2017, Donors Trust is the partner you need. The stock market's booming and the tax code is changing. Donors Trust experts can help you navigate all of this and equip you to give in a way that best benefits you, your family, and holds fast to the principles that you hold dear. Visit DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet right now and download a free copy of your helpful guide. Discover a better way to support the conservative values you believe in. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, let's change gears. I want to put on my philosopher's hat and talk about fake news and the pursuit of truth. It's the Socratic tradition. That's how I was raised. Turn on Fox News and then switch to MSNBC, and it's like watching two completely different universes. How do we trust the news today? Where do we go? How do we get to the truth? And I, and I believe there is such a thing as the truth. Always have. It's not just my professional oath as a philosopher, but I believe it. I'm concerned that many young people today don't even believe in truth. Here to discuss these issues with me is a journalist who I think is one of the most objective TV news hosts today. She tries hard every day to get at the truth of things. You'll see why in our conversation. Here we go. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Okay, folks, uh, this is a special treat for us. Martha McCallum, I occasionally appear on her show, which is The Story. Uh, Martha is the host of The Story at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox News, and she joins us now. Hi, Martha. Good morning, Bill. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Well, you do a great job on The Story. And one of the things I want to ask you about, because I know you've thought about this, and you're, you know, you're doing this sort of every night, trying to get to the truth of things. How do we know the difference between real news and fake news? How do we, how do we figure that out? How do you figure it out, and how does the audience figure it out? You know what? It, it is, I think, increasingly difficult in this world. And as as you and I well know, um, the polarization is real. And it has dug into some of the, you know, sort of most storied institutions in this country. So I think that the, um, the onus is, is on consumers and viewers in a way that it really wasn't at least not so outwardly in the past. Um, and people do tend to go to their corners to get their information. And so that's why we 
really want to do um, on my show in the evening, and we love it when you come on. You have a great way of sort of taking things to a place where it just makes sense, and I think that's really valuable. So, you know, what we try to do is be that sort of evening where we pick five or six stories of the day and we try to bring people on that are going to allow the viewer to take it in and and really get the facts and really think about what they think about it. And we do allow analysis on our show, which is to, to say that, you know, we bring on really smart people and have them talk about what they think about what's going on and and we our viewers are pretty smart as well and they walk away you know sort of with their own understanding of, of what makes sense to them so um okay. i think it's challenging there's no doubt about it yeah i think more challenging um martha in my own sense than it used to be i remember my introductory political science course in college 100 years ago uh not the, quite that many but the professor said your assignments are to read this and read that and read a daily newspaper yeah, as if that were sufficient. Um, it wasn't then, but it sure as heck isn't now. Um, how many things do you read, uh, and how, wh- where do you get your reading from? Your, your staff puts stuff in front of you. I used to, when I was in the cabinet, when I got in the car, I wanted the New York Times, uh, the Washington Times, the New York Post, the Washington Post, and USA Today. Uh, you know, a kind of a balance at least I thought it was at the time. I think it was pretty mm-hmm. good just just to kind of, you know, see things from a diff- different angle. But, you you know, it's hard if you just got one of those papers to, to be confident that you were getting everything you should. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the most important things that I think in our business you have to do. And I do the same thing. You know, I sort of start my morning um, with a scan across a lot of different platforms. Um, okay. And, the, all the same papers that you mentioned, with the exception of, uh, you know, with the edition of the New York Post, which is just sort of, you know, a fan favorite. <laughs> right. Well, um, I, I can't. I mean, yeah. yeah, I'll confess I read it for it's, lots it's another, of reasons. Yeah, another one that we throw into the mix. Um, but, you know, the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal, for sure, the New York Times and the Washington Post, the Washington Times, as you say, um, are all things that I sort of want to have in my in my mix in the morning. I also look at what everyone's doing on on TV. You know, I'm, I'm looking at what we're doing at Fox. I'm looking at MSNBC. I'm looking um, at CNN. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, even the front pages, I always still go to the hard copy of the newspaper in the morning to see what's on each front page and then to dig into some of the editorial pages as well there. You know, because I really do want, I, I, I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm kind of only, you know, getting my information from from one way of thinking. And I, and I think that, you know, the only way to kind of stay uh, scene in this world is, is to make sure that you, you know what everybody's looking at so that, you know, you know where they're coming from. Um, but it is challenging to be sure. You know, what I worry about, um, Martha is, and you know, I, I, I reference it sometimes on your show and you're kind of let me indulge, you know, I did a philosophy degree and as a philosopher, you know, professional, like doctors are, you know, have to believe in medicine. I, I believe in the truth. I believe there is such a mm-hmm. thing as the truth. Um, and that, you know, we, uh, you know, like Diogenes with the lantern looking for an honest man and Socrates, mm-hmm. you know, going around interrogating young people to find out the truth of things. I want to get to the truth of things. But one of the worries I have is that with all this polarization and balkanization, um, I mean, but you just said, boy, watch, you know, watch MSNBC for 20 minutes, put on yeah. Fox and put on CNN and you'll see we're almost talking about different universes different do, worlds. We, do, do we run the risk 
of people, a generation growing up to think there is no truth. It's just how you perceive it. It's just, yeah. you know, where, where you sit. That would be a deadly and horrible conclusion, wouldn't it? You know, I, I really could not agree with you more. You know, I'm raising three young uh, teenagers and a college student, and, um, and I've, it makes me really sad to hear them say to me in some cases, well, you know, if, if I really, you know, if I, if I write that the way I, I feel about it, I, I'm not going to get a good grade. Uh-huh. I mean, that, that uh-huh. is, um, yeah. that's a tragedy in yeah, America. And I, and I really believe, I think we are in serious danger of the condition that you speak of, where we, we don't really have a handle on what the truth is. There's, and everything, and I do, you know, cable news and, you know, we're all, we're all to blame, I think, to, to, to some extent. And also just the accessibility of having so many different outlets. You know, when you had a few TV stations and a few newspapers, um, the, the pressure was greater. And that's not to say that those institutions weren't partisan at times, because they certainly were. But we've, we've just, we've gotten so deeply into our silos that people live in different neighborhoods depending on their yeah. political philosophy. Yeah. And they go to different churches and restaurants. And, you know, it, it's really, it is not healthy for this country. And, um, you know, it's certainly something that we aim to, to do every night and in our conversations is to kind of try to figure out where the truth lies. Um, but it's increasingly difficult and it does worry me about the future. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I, I I agree. I had a story I told the other day. I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, Murrow, Washington, a pretty liberal county. And someone just drove by the other day, stopped their car and said, you know, I hate you. I hate Trump. You should move out of this neighborhood. Really? <laughs> I had no idea the person was. I said, well, maybe we should talk about this sometimes. I don't want to talk to you. And that's the other terrible conclusion. I don't want to talk to you. No, it's, uh, yeah. <clears throat> The aforementioned uh, Socrates said there are three conditions for dialogue, good dialogue, intelligence, you know, as much as you can muster, um, candor, telling the truth. Your show is great on that, by the way, Martha. And, and goodwill. And goodwill in his context meant the attempt to get at the truth of things that you don't, you know, you don't put up smoke screens and you don't hide from it. And I, I mean, I, I do have to pull the flag up a second for 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 fox when you're doing some tough thing you have usually have two people you know one on one side and the other on the other side and that that seems to me to be a very helpful way to get at the truth of things at least sometimes yeah i mean that that's absolutely what we always aim to do and you know it, you know as i say like and i do think that the president has um has exacerbated it uh, you know, in a way, um, because he's a very strong character and he says controversial things and he tweets things that, um, that are controversial. And because of his personality and the way that he, um, you know, he's a unique human being. I think that <laughs> that's the yeah. truth, right? Yeah. I mean, he's a unique, unique character in history as, You've always pointed out, Bill, in history, there are plenty of, you know, of Trump-like characters. Um, and I think that people forget that, who have been, you know, I think of Lyndon Johnson when I think of this president in terms of his, you know, sort of guttural way of dealing with people and nasty and his vulgarity at times. Um, 
But I, I think because we are living in this like social media world and where, you know, feelings are so sensitive and everyone is so easily triggered, um, he, you know, sort of takes the wrath of that in a way that I'm sure didn't exist yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting um, because I was just thinking while you were saying it, uh, you, obviously <clears throat> what you're saying would be echoed and, and the language would change and, the, and by, by critics of the president say he's the worst, the most divisive, the most. But, but I see what you're saying. But, you know, he is, I, I get, I get, I used to say, I like to see, I like sins when I can see him, where I can see him, you know, uh, yeah. as opposed to the smiling, reassuring yeah. face and voice of Charlie Rose or Matt Lauer or, yeah, um, yeah, and I, I don't mean you. to pick on these guys, but there are an awful lot of people who try to come across as the soul of reason and balance. And, mm-hmm. you know, my, in my experience, uh, you know, I, I take more, most of the guys I've spent time with in locker rooms and even in taverns over a lot of the guys in suits who are, I mean, Obama was not divisive in the same way that, you know, that, that, uh, that, that Trump can be, but he was sure he was consequentially more, more divisive, I think, or maybe at least as because of what he did. I mean, he was very soothing and he was the president of all the people and didn't, you know, pick on um, individuals and, 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 and tweet, but, Divisive, boy, talk about dividing the country. I think we're still recovering from some of those racial divisions that he helped foster. Absolutely. And when I say that I think that, you know, some of it is from this president, I don't even mean it as, you know, sort of at his own intention. Right. It's just he's sort of the catalyst um, because he's, you know, because he is the the man that he is and he's a truly unique individual. he has he's sparked it, you know, and it, 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 it just because he's never going to not be who he is. You know, I mean, every time That's he comes right. out, he's, you know, he he's very true to his own sense of being Donald Trump. And that drives people crazy. And I couldn't agree with you more that, you know, I, I also, you know, sometimes slickness uh, and, um, yeah. You yeah. know, appearances are, right. are really good enough for a lot of people, you know? Yeah, if someone looks right. presidential, it's like, okay, you know, I feel safe, I feel comfortable, that's what I'm used to. And I do think, you know, when you look at, and you pointed out the, the racial divisiveness that grew during the Obama administration, I think is one of the great tragedies of President Obama's presidency. And yeah, I, I say that, you know, hopefully in a, in a nonpartisan way. And, you know, I look at what, I look at the potential that he had, I believe, um, to help rebuild the family in some inner city families to foster an interest in things like charter schools um, and to not be afraid of the change that they represent. Uh, I, I think, you know, and I'm, I no doubt, I'm sure that the former president would disagree, but just, you know, <laughs> I, I think that is really one of the great tragedies of his, of his presidency. And yeah. That's my opinion. No, no, I, you bet. And, and, and the talks he could have given to the youth of America, Absolutely. you know, about, uh, I mean, look, he's uh, about, from all accounts, uh, an admirable father and husband. And yes. Uh, yes. he could speak, he could speak about what that means and what that means to the community, you know, and, and what it uh, meant for him to have been abandoned as a young man by his father Yeah, and how yeah. potent that is. He had that experience. He knew what it was like to grow up without a father. And we know that, you know, huge percentages of young men growing up, um, 
in inner cities and other places in rural America um, without dads and how, how tough that is um, and how much more difficult it makes it to succeed. And I, I just I think that those opportunities were missed, and I think that's it's sad. Well, look, this is great, and this has been great. But I just wanted you to see what a 16-minute segment feels like, you know? You and I- it's nice. I like <laughs> so, it. <laughs> so give me, give me 16 You didn't, you didn't have to jump in or cut me off because, because someone was telling you that we were about to hit a hard break. It's right, <laughs> right, a hard break, right. Uh, you know, I call your staff. I said, we got a lot of time. They say, oh, Mr. Bennett, we have three minutes and 40 seconds. I said, oh, wow, how luxurious. You know it's a pleasure to get to talk to you for, for several minutes and uh, – we really do love having you on our show. You're, thank you're you. one of the most popular uh, segments we do because you're always great. So thank you so much for your time, Bill. Thanks, Martha. Congratulations uh, on your thank show you, and a success. Terrific. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much. As you know, folks, one of my goals with this podcast is to bring you voices that you'll not hear in other places in the media. Uh, these are among the smartest people in the country and part of the Trump revolution. That's some of the folks we get and try to get for you. One of my favorites is Steve Wynn. Uh, I've told you before, he's among the most successful businessmen in the country, and he's serving as the finance chairman of the RNC because he believes in making America great again and knows it will take a lot of work, and he knows how to raise the money to get there. I've spent a lot of time with Steve, and it's been good time, and I've recorded a series of discussions here on the podcast. I think we present some pretty interesting segments that I think will both educate listeners on how someone like Steve thinks about the world today and thinks about particularly the Trump presidency. I hope you enjoy listening to them as much as I enjoyed sitting down and talking with Steve. In this segment, which we're about to play, Steve reflects on President Trump's trip to Asia. He explains why the president's speech in South Korea was so important, why he thinks Kim Jong-un's crazy actions will ultimately lead to the end of his regime. The segment was recorded before North Korea's latest test this week, but it's still just as timely and important. Here's Steve filling in some of the gaps and some of the dimensions of the problem that Gordon didn't get to because we asked Gordon to address the immediate situation. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Trump hit it right up the middle with this trip to China. His speech in Korea was terrific. A beautiful job of reminding everybody about the history of capitalism a free market economy, and socialism and communism. Yes. There's a peninsula. It was a, a, it was a blank canvas. Half of it went one way, treating people with respect, with freedom, and, 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 and the ability to have a better life. The other half went for control and government and the loss of freedom. One is a desolate, miserable, starving dump and the other is one of the most powerful industrialized nations in the world with the highest level of education of any industrialized country in the world, South Korea. Yeah. You know, and Trump doted and, and, and highlighted this historical immutable fact. What a good point to make. And in a way diminished North Korea as a, in, in real terms to what it really is, just sort of a screwball who's managed to dominate people as other dictators with big guns or swords have dominated poor people in the past. Yes. 
this guy, they've been three generations of the uh, Kims. This kid has the potential of ending it. <laughs> yeah. If, from what I see, everything he's done has resulted in backwardness. You take a look at his strategy. Shoots his mouth off. Fires missiles. For sure he's not going to start a war with America. There'd be no more Korea. And he there'd be no more him. So what has he done with his bluster and his bragging and his chest pounding? He's managed for the first time. His, his father and grandfather couldn't. He's managed to get sanctions from all of the countries in the United Nations against him, even China. The guy is a total loser. Every aspect of his of his strategy is best is ass backwards. There's no out for this guy. He has, he has there's no win to his strategy now. Where where does he gain? Yes. He's already dominated these people with his secret police and his murdering prisons and his torture. All right. So you're safe. You got you got the iron grip on the poor people of North Korea. Were there 40 million of them or something like that? Okay. What's the idea of trying to spit in the eye of the United States of America? You get crushed like an ant. You 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 create enough trouble in that peninsula, and you upset South Korea, and you get Japan rearming. Yeah, that's now that's you're smart. going to get Xi Jinping to stomp on you, because Xi Jinping doesn't want Japan rearmed. He doesn't want South Korea moving more into missiles to protect it from a, and get missiles from America. Xi Jinping wants things quiet because that's his part of the world. And this guy is stirring up stuff. And his regime, in my opinion, has got a time clock on it. Because unless this guy does a 180, the Chinese are going to see to it that he gets replaced because they're not going to let him stir up a war on the Korean Peninsula. And then 40 million people will try and run into China. The, the Chinese have hundreds of thousands of troops on the North Korean border to make sure that they can't run across. Now, Kim Jong-un, he may be this little twerp with the big guns, may finally be able to do what his father and grandfather couldn't accomplish and the regime. But he looks like a loser to me. He looked like he looks like a loser with a big mouth, and and some kind of distorted ego that allows him to behave in the way he has. Yes. And every single move he's made has put him in worse position. What good is it going to be for him to have a nuclear weapon? You going to shoot it at somebody? Everybody that's got a nuclear weapon knows you can't use them. But in the process of getting a nuclear weapon and actually threatening people with one, he's going to he's put himself in a position where he's he's made his country even poorer than it was when his father died. Let pretty me, pretty <clears throat> magnificent achievement. Korea, North Korea, was down so far it looked like up, <laughs> and this this twerp that took over <laughs> has managed to squash him even further. Let me ask you uh, on this because you praise the president's. Uh, perspective on this and his treatment how he's handled it press has made a lot i know it's the press maybe right maybe wrong maybe false maybe true 
but has made a lot out of the evolution of his views. This is not the president we heard during the campaign and so on. This seems to be a uh, kinder, softer, at least toward China, Donald Trump. Has he changed? Have you changed his mind? Have you talked to him about China? Surely you have. So. Everybody talks to the president. Uh, he has a wide range of... Uh, sure. Uh, but what you see is President Trump switching slowly from campaign mode to be in the president. Yeah. He's settling in. And as he does, a good deal of his charm that privately we've seen is beginning to show rather than his more combative and reactive nature. But, you know, this poor fella, no matter what anybody said, and we take President Trump for his strength and his weaknesses all in all. Sure. He does not deserve the the vitriol no, he doesn't. of the press. The, the, the things that are said, the things that are really patently made up to watch MSNBC or CNN and on this president completely distorts any concept that they're a news agency. I mean, I'm willing, I may be a, a pal of Trump, but I've been a critic, critic when, when it's been appropriate in person and even publicly on occasion. So he's my friend. But anybody, anybody with a brain in their head can see the distortion day in and day out of the of the of the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and MSNBC's treatment of the president. There's no rational explanation for the crap that they put up and the way they report every single event. They they can take the best news possible and they'll hunt to get a negative spin on it and ignore everything. If we're talking about distorted behavior, it doesn't it doesn't also explain the preoccupation that some of my friends have with still chasing after Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah. I'm tired of that, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm tired of that, you know. And, uh, and the fact that the politicians behave badly, sometimes very badly. Yes, sir. Sometimes even illegally. No surprise. Okay, I know some of you will disagree with what Steve said about Hillary Clinton, but you know, folks, we'll leave that for another time. Let me focus on something very interesting that he said. He believes China doesn't want a war on the Korean Peninsula and will reign in North Korea before it can launch an attack. My question is, can China reign in North Korea? I'm not so sure. All right, always something interesting from Steve. Um, it was very interesting to me. I learned something. I hope you did. Uh, and that's a wrap. That's a wrap for today's show. Thanks so much for listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Please tell your friends and subscribe. It's free.